You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Okay. Well, thanks guys for tuning in. This is the Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. And today we've got a really good guest. We've got our esteemed director, Cam Ingram. Cam, can you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, Ben. Thanks, Corey and Ben, for having me here today. And really look forward to our discussion about one of my favorite pastimes is catching fish. And just give a little brief introduction. I'm executive director here at the Wildlife Commission. I've been with the agency now for 25 years. Spent my first 23 years in the organization as a wildlife officer wearing uniform and out there dealing with constituents every weekend and teaching programs for the agency and promoting the mission and through the enforcement division. And since then, I've taken this job going on two years, August 1st, as executive director and organization with $100 million budget and 680 employees. And we've been dealing with COVID now, as like everybody else in the public and private sectors. And Extreme challenges, and but it's been uh, an exciting time to say the least. We've had uh, a lot of successes and adaptations through COVID, and this agency is is continuing with this conservation promotion across the state and great fisheries that we'll be talking about here soon. But yeah, just excited to be here. I, I live in Western Piedmont, if you will, around Randolph County. And just south of Greensboro and got a wife to teach you school, uh, two kids, one in college and the other one is going in 11th grade and two girls. But yeah, really enjoyed being here and fishing and hunting and being a constituent and supporter of conservation in the state. So That's great. And, you know, you guys know we've had, again, I can't thank you guys enough for all the positive feedback you've gotten, but Cam has been very supportive of the podcast. Here he is getting in kind of on the early side of things, and that's been a big help. But again, before we get going too far, I just want to thank all the listeners, all the great questions that we're getting. We're trying to get back with everybody as quick as we possibly can between our work schedules and our fishing schedules and everything else we have going on. So if you haven't heard back from us, just be a little bit more patient. But I think we're almost on top of everything. In fact, we're going to answer one of the questions here towards the end of the podcast. But the other day, I just want to say to our listeners, Cam's kind of, when you think about the director, you know, that high esteem. Yeah, heavy position. I'm not trying to cut him down at all, especially here while we're recording things for all to hear. But he's a fisherman. He's a regular guy. So to those of you that are listening, Cam's one of us. And it's great to have somebody with his perspective and experience in this position because he speaks the same language. And I think that's a big benefit to fishermen, to the agency as a whole. I think it really helps us get the good work that we're doing. I think it just helps kind of grease those wheels even more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Cam and I go way back because when I started 19 years ago, Cam was the officer in Orange County. Yep. Cam had a little more hair and it was darker. Yeah, I think you did too, Cole. I had a little more hair and I don't have any hair now, hence the name of the podcast. Yeah, Cam is well, what we're talking about today, crappy fishing. Cam's been an avid crappy fisherman for as long as I've known him. Like you said, Ben, he's just a big supporter of sportsmen and women across the state and all that we do. And 
couldn't ask for a better person than that director's office for sure. Yeah, I tell y'all, uh, the hunting and fishing part of it, you know, I started really early, you know, spending time with my father and, and my grandmother, you know, out in the woods and, and on ponds out around Lee County, around Sanford and, you know, fishing farm ponds with my dad and, and that 12-foot John boat that we can all remember back in those days. I mean, those are priceless moments, you know, just great moments. We spent a lot of time together brim fishing and bass fishing and which led to crappy fishing on the lakes and growing up there close to Jordan and, and getting to fish the riverside of Jordan growing up with my father's son. But primarily spending good quality time outdoors with him was my jump start to where we are today. And I mean, I've taken every opportunity I can throughout the years to get outdoors and love the fact that I get to promote that through my work every week too. Yeah. So we were together, the three of us were together about a week ago fishing together to talk about what we're going to talk about on the podcast today. And Ben, on the way home, texted me, and the text was, if I'd have told my 16-year-old self that I would be doing this for a living, I'd have called him a liar or something to that effect. And that's so true. Like, the things that we get to do and the things we get to see and be able to promote passions of ours, you know, things that we truly, truly love. We love being outdoors. We love fishing. We love hunting. And yeah, if you'd have told me when I was 12, 14, 16 years old that this is what I was going to be doing, I'd been like, no. There is no such a thing. That's and, right. But there is, and it's been great for sure. No, it's definitely been a blessing, and I think anybody who's in this career needs to take a minute and reflect on that because there's some neat stuff that we see. Anglers see it, but biologists, we have a little bit different perspective, and it's pretty awesome, especially when you can blend the two together. Yeah. And I did. I said, you know, if I could go back and tell my younger self what I was doing, he wouldn't believe it. Because this is a huge blessing to be able to do this kind of thing. And then also share this information and hope that other folks can benefit from our experience and our successes and our knowledge that we get to help them catch more fish. So, but yeah, Cam, he took us fishing the other day and we got to talking and Cam's a crappy guy, right? That's your favorite. Well, it is. I spent a lot of time doing it and I feel like I was taught by the best and really take every opportunity I can to share what, you know, my knowledge and, you know, I'm not the best crappy fisherman, but I do enjoy it, and I've been fairly successful with it. You know, of course, again, after the predecessors and the mentors that I had taught me the ins and outs, and it takes a while, as we we experienced the other day on the boat. I mean, it's not something that, you know, it's different styles leads to different successes, and um, there's a knack to fishing the way that we fish and artificial and, and where to be and what to use and, and the gear. But yeah, we had a great time the other day. It was a little warm on us. We tried to get started really early that day. Just just say what it was. It was a sweat box. It was really hot. The goal was to put the boat on at, at eight and fish till about noon. And, and we got tied up talking in the parking lot like we knew we would. And I think we launched the boat about 8.30. And I think it was close to 90 already by the time we launched that warm. morning. It was warm. It was one of the warmer days. Pretty calm where we put on. But luckily, we found a little wind and, and got into a little fishing. And had a great time that day. Yeah. So I have been, I fished from Alaska to Brazil. I've been offshore. I fished in the mountains. I fished, been blessed enough to fish in a lot of places. And I'd like to think that I'm a pretty decent fisherman. And I'm just going to tell you guys right now, for about the first hour and a half, Ham <laughs> just put on the, the show, the <laughs> smackdown that I haven't experienced in a good little minute. So, yeah, he he didn't describe it well enough to us. If he'd have described what it was at the beginning, we would have understood it. That if it was miniature fluke fishing, 
you'd have been all over it, Ben. Those of you who know about my love for flukes have listened to a nearly every didn't say single podcast thus far <laughs> yeah. when I've talked about flukes. Cam gives us this little, looks like a little booger, you know. It's got a straight tail on it, and I look at it. I'm used to curly tails and things that look like they got alien legs and all that kind of stuff. And and he gives me this little bitty straight tail, and the next thing I know, Cam just starts just one after the other. It's almost every cast. It was embarrassing. I mean, I'm standing within four foot of him. I can't catch one. And he's just like, they're right there, Corey. They're right there pointing at it. They're right there. And I'm like, well, that, well whatever. There was a reason for that. And then that's similar to the first trip I ever went on to, to Jordan Lake was with a retired wildlife commission employee by the name of Brian Scruggs, who I think is part fish today. He's a real fisherman. And I did similar for y'all that day the way he did for me. I asked him, what do I need to bring? And that's what y'all said. And I said, just bring, you know, whatever you use to crappy fish with. And knowing that I had on my boat what I needed and stuff that I could share with y'all. But yeah, it was through the same process that I went through. And let's see, that was probably around 1998. And I got on Brian's boat on the front of his boat with him. And and I thought I was a fisherman and, and I was not a crappy fisherman that I thought I was when I got on the boat with him. And uh my gear was too heavy, and it was the wrong size, the wrong weight. I had the wrong weighted lines, and I learned real fast that whatever Brian was using, that's what I needed to be using. That's exactly what I did after I nestled up right beside him on the front of that bass boat. Yep, I was one. I was watching Camp Catch Fish. Yes. Because I was not. And two... All we were doing was sweating. <laughs> if you're ever in that situation, and it will happen, it happens to the best of anglers, when somebody gets the hot hand, the best thing you can do is... Watch those hands. Yeah. And I started watching Cam and I started seeing what he was doing and watching how he was letting the bait work. And the one thing I realized is that the rods that I had brought were light actions. And then really they were just too stiff to feel that bite. You know, I could watch my line yeah. bounce and I'd catch a fish, but I wasn't feeling the bite because I should have been using a little bit softer tip than what we had when I stole one of Cam's rods, just straight grabbed it up. We both stole his rods. All of a sudden, the catching started happening. And what we were doing is we were fishing deep structure that we knew about or that we were just along for the ride. Cam knew about it, and we were fishing deep structure. And this time of year, those crappy are oriented to that structure, and they were picking up on all the things that was drifting by, so to speak. Talk to us a little bit, Cam, about fishing that time of year and what's kind of how you approach those brush piles. Yeah, so my techniques are not like everybody else's, and I typically don't really get into crappy fishing really hard until the water temperatures in the mid seventies. And typically, I fish at Jordan Lake and go to Harris some, but typically Jordan Lake is where I launch my boat every time. And once it gets into the mid seventies, the upper seventies, my best luck has been around that structure. And the structure changes throughout the years, and I like a little wind. I like to fish in the wind a little bit like most folks do, and dead calm days are sometimes tougher. We had a little wind that day. It just depended on where we were going. I think we had a east wind, if I remember correctly, and, and so some of the places were better than others like usual, but I like to use a, a lighter line, four to six pound test line, monofilament line, something simple that, you know, if I do get hung up, that I can break off and not disturb the structure too much. And I do like to approach at a distance and cast to start with before I really tone down into to the structure itself. And it's a lot of finesse fishing. 
It's tossing out and really paying attention to watching your line. I, you know, that's one thing I learned from Brian years ago was crappy fishing. Often they'll just take the bait and you'll see that little twitch to your line. And that's the key to me right there that, you know, he's on and don't need to wait. It's the time right then and there. But yeah, I'm like 12 to 14 foot of water. You know, the water temperature gets on up into the mid 80s. We may go a little bit deeper than that if we can find some structure a little deeper, but you know, 12 to 14 foot of water and just be patient. Just because they're on one side of the structure, that doesn't mean they're on the other or vice versa. You know, you got to really work and try to keep that trolling motor and that thrust of the water pressure you're sending through the brush out or the structure. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. We use different lures, different weights. I like a, a 16th ounce. I started for years and years throwing a 32nd ounce jig head, just a plain lead brass hook jig. And I was using a green and white tube jig is what my go-to was. And that seemed like that's all I threw. And over the years with changing equipment like fishermen often do, I started going with 16th ounce because I can work it a little faster. And especially when the fish are a little more aggressive and it, that thing will sink a little bit faster. I can cover more ground. So yeah, I'd that is the same technique, though, same watching that that line, what, looking for that twitch, you know, and setting that hook and letting them fight and, and come in, landing the fish. And it's something that it takes a little bit to get used to, as y'all did. I mean, y'all, it took you a while. It took you about an hour until you, you picked up one of my rods or got on the front of the boat. And I finally got Ben to bypass Corey and come on up to the front of the boat. He was on the rear of the boat, and he kind of jumped over top of him. He took my spot. I mean, he just got mad. and I got invited. Yeah, did. He did say get up on the front of the boat, but evidently that meant Corey get to the back of the boat, which I don't know what that means. I'll figure that out later on in life. We Might have nightmares about it later. He's yeah. trying to catch some fish. He knew he knew you were better at it than I was. I'm, well, you said it. Well, I've heard about that. I'd be the first to admit it. It's okay. You're talking about the twitch, and it made me remember. I'm not a crappy fisherman, but I've fished for crappy twice this year, which is a huge increase in previous years. <laughs> But the first time I went this year, I went with a guy who had live scope, and we were watching them and catching them, and that was pretty neat. But the one thing that I really learned in watching that bait on that screen is a crappy jig, it does not take hardly any kind of twitch to move that thing maybe two or three feet in the water. So as you're crappy fishing, you learn that you know just a little wiggle is a lot more bang for your buck than really like a hard twitch. And that was one of the things I watched with Cam is he barely moved, moved it. it. Once it was there, it was down there. And the bait itself or the lure itself was really doing the work. Yeah. And he was just trying not to mess it up. Well, you know, It was the second trip for me, not crappy fishing, but like I had just been smallmouth fishing up in Michigan. And what I learned on that trip was that most of the week we were probably overfishing baits. And I learned that again, crappy fishing with Cam is that you can really overfish something pretty fast. With this, you got to slow down. Yeah. The twitches are very small. You got to make sure the bait gets down there because it's going to take it a while at a 16th ounce or a 32nd ounce. So that, for me, that was probably one of the biggest take-homes is just be really slow, probably which what? I should know that with trout fishing on the coast. I mean, everything there is slow too, So, but it seems like it's even slower. I think when you move that jig, you're actually moving it away from the structure. Yeah. And that was a mistake. I think a lot of folks, including yeah. ourselves, made is that we were fishing but away I will, from the I will go back and say, if he'd have said, hmm. it's miniature fluke fishing, we'd have been on it pretty quick. Right. But he didn't say that. He wanted to smoke us right out of the gate. 
And then that's exactly what he did. He smoked us right out of the gate. I mean, I was embarrassed for yeah, both of us. It was. I was really more embarrassed for you because you're the professional and I'm not. It was a strong turnout by the director. The director, director was, made a strong turnout right early. I tell you, we talk about that twitch, but just to be clear, when I'm throwing it out there, oftentimes that weight of that jig and the buoyancy of that lure that I'm using is the bump. I talk about twitching. I twitch it some. I twitch it with my rod tips, and I'll move it around a lot. But oftentimes, what I'm seeing is on the fall. That fall Mm -hmm. is so important, that initial cast, especially when you're dealing with wind and that bait's moving around. As Ben, as you talk about, it doesn't take much to move that 16th ounce, especially in current. And, man, that fall is so important. And oftentimes, what I see is crappier hitting that on the fall. Oh, yeah. And that bump on that line is what I'm seeing. Or the stop, you know. And that's what I saw, too, is we'd throw it out there and you'd watch it and that bait would just quit sinking. Yep. And when it quits sinking, that means a fish has it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes, too, people ask me about, you know, color of their lines. And different folks use different color lines. The most important thing that I would say for line color is use something you can see. And, you know, I don't like a bright line. I fish with another friend of mine who uses a, a yellow line and he's, he has pretty good luck. But I like that clear line. Another friend of mine fishes with green line, and he can see that. I can't see the green line. And again, I'm looking for that bump. It's so important. But yeah, I like a clear line. Well, you said it at the beginning that it's finesse fishing, and it really is. I mean, you've got to be paying attention. You can't just throw it out there and reel it back in or wiggle it and think that you're going to feel what's happening because those fish, the bite is very slight. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's a movement of the line or just a slight bump every once in a while if they hit it hard enough. That's right. It's a different bite for sure. you got to get used to it. So year in, year out in the surveys and things that we do, crappy are always probably in the what? Top five. In the Piedmont, they're in the top three, hands down. Right. Generally, they come right behind bass in our surveys with anglers. They are a very popular fishery for sure. So my question, you know, and we have a very diverse fisheries here in North Carolina that we're blessed to have, but why do y'all think that crappie always kind of track out pretty high? Like, what do you think the draw is? What's the big need for crappie? Well, what I've seen being in the field working is, it's an exciting fish to catch. It's not like the bass that jump out of the water, but crappy with light gear fight really well. And they're accessible. They hold to structure. It could be just small structure. So they're accessible to the beginning fishermen and the fishermen that's like ourselves that have been fishing all of our lives. And they bite well with live bait and artificial bait. So you see folks that can use different methods and still are successful. But yeah, they're plentiful. They're great to eat. That's another thing that I've learned throughout my life. You know, my father cleaning fish after we fished in ponds to today, you know, us fishing the other day. And after we were done, you know, taking us home some fillets. So the popularity of the good table that you set in the evening after a good day of fishing adds to the crappy fishery and and the draw to it. That's true. I don't know a whole lot of catch and release crappy fishermen. No. No. And I think that's probably why it's as popular as it is in the state of North Carolina and really throughout the Southeast is because it is a, I guess the word meat fishery, you know, that a lot of people are taking them home to eat and a lot of people don't take bass home to eat. They're fairly readily available, you know, in most of our reservoirs and rivers in our state. We have crappy just about everywhere. Yeah, I think it's probably safe to say that you're within a 
probably 30, 45 minute drive from fairly decent crappy fishing wherever would, you are in the state. I would think so. Yeah. yeah. So that's also a big draw is that they're just about in all of our rivers and lakes. So that's kind of neat. I mean, they're in the coast, they're in the mountain reservoirs, and they're everywhere in between. I think that definitely adds to their popularity. Cam, is now a good time to talk about the fish that Corey let get away? Oh, the big one? You're yes, talking about the, the, big, the biggest one of the, the day. The biggest one of the day. Yeah, probably good. So yeah, that Corey was still trying to get a handle on it. You hadn't bypassed him in the boat yet. He was still up there close to me, and he was having a f- couple of good strikes, but I don't think he had landed one. But boy, he had one on that was... We needed to have the net out. It was probably, it was probably um, eight pounds, according to y'all. Yeah, it was a monster crappy. There may have been question. a state record. Might yep. have been a state record. Yep. Could have yep. been the new state record. But undoubtedly, he got to bring it up far enough for you and I to see it and right. uh, verify that it was definitely a large fish. A very experienced crappy angler and a fish biologist both saw the fish and knew that it was quite large. A very good specimen for the species, yes. I might say. Yeah. Yes. My mistake was I put sunscreen on. I should have just, like, cooked myself. And as soon as I lifted the line with my hand, it slipped through, and that was it. Yep. The fish slipped off me. And so that was the one that got away that we remember most vividly. Yeah. It was the largest one of the day. Yeah, we couldn't let that one go without it, bringing it up in the podcast. Well, I'm just glad it wasn't you and I that let that one go. It was a mistake that I'll have to live with. It's okay. It'll be okay. Yeah, I'll get over it eventually. We've all lost some good fish here and there along the way, so it happens to the best of us. Mm -hmm. Corey, we've got two species of crappie. We do. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. What you want to talk about? You want to know what both of them are? Yes. We have a black and a white. Right. Black crappie are what is the dominant species in Jordan Lake. You can see a white crappie in Jordan Lake. They're pretty rare. But basically, blacks and whites are throughout the state for the most part. Whites tend to be kind of in the central part of the state and then further west. And blacks tend to be in the central part of the state and further east. White crappie typically inhabit waters that are pretty turbid, so it means it's kind of dirty. So you'll get them in some high turbid environments like High Rock and those places out in the Yadkin Basin where there's a lot of mud moving through the system. And black crappie typically don't like that type of environment. So that's where they kind of fall out. But if you're trying to identify them, a white crappie has, so if you look at the dorsal spine of a fish, the hard structures on that dorsal spine, the actual spines, not the rays, but the hard pointy parts, a white crappie has five to six, if you count them, and a black crappie has seven to eight. And generally, a white crappie will have bars, their spots will come together like bars down their body, and a black crappie is just mottled all over. That doesn't mean that that always holds true. And they do hybridize from time to time. You will see white crappy colors on a black crappy spine count. And that's probably some type of hybrid that's going on. But yeah, those are the two species in our state. Yeah, a lot of times the black crappy will be just that. They'll be darker in color. Of course, when the males are spawning, they'll be darker too, no matter what the species. Another thing that I seem to to notice when I'm looking at them is black crappy are more rounder. Whereas a white crappie is a little longer looking, a little more snooty in the yep. face. Yep. But the good news is when you fry them up, they all taste the same. They yeah. do taste the same. And Ben, I'll say, you know, that the ones I've, in my experiences on Jordan, have been the black crappie and me primarily fishing in the lake part, not in the river part of Jordan. I have caught a few white crappie 
in the past 20 years on Jordan, but it's been very minimal. It's been mostly black crappy in the style of fishing that I do. Right. It seems like they are kind of specific. In fact, I took some guys out to take pictures for some fish ID resources, and on their list of things they wanted to take pictures of was a white crappy. And I was like, I can go ahead and tell you right now, we will not see a white crappy on the Noose River. Yeah. The very first fish we shocked up was a white crappy that day. <laughs> so even the biologists can get fooled or be wrong on occasion. Yeah. So. I mean, both species are pretty much found throughout the state. But what I have found in working in the Piedmont primarily is that whichever one takes hold in that body of water, they're the dominant fish for the most part. They're going to be 80% whatever. If it's white crappy, it's going to be 80% white crappy. If it's black, it's going to be 80% black. So they just kind of... Yeah, whatever one dominates is the one that dominates for that body of water. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. There's definitely some challenges for resource managers when it comes to managing crappy. They have kind of a a unique life history, and it's kind of a boom and bust type thing. When conditions are right, they get off very prolific spawns. And then if conditions are not right, they may have a really poor year class of fish produced. And so that kind of lends itself differently. And that's why there's so many different lakes with different management strategies. Some don't have limits, others have limits. Corey, let's talk a little bit about that for a minute. Yeah, so like Ben mentioned, they can be boom or bust. Like at Jordan Lake, for example, the reproduction is pretty good every year. It's pretty unusual for them not to have a good reproductive year. The thing that limits Jordan or creates a challenge at Jordan is how fast they're harvested. Fish at that, it gets a lot of pressure. And so there's a lot of fish that are being taken out of the system over a period of time. And so you have to balance that fishing pressure with how they reproduce. But now in other places where they're very prolific, you don't want to put a size limit on them because if you do, they're going to stun out and you're going to have a bunch of six inch crappy running around. And you see that a lot in a lot smaller bodies of water. If you get a body of water that's, say, under 500 acres, it's pretty hard to manage a fishery that's under 500 acres. They're going to be, for the most part, about six inches or less, and some of those six-inch fish might be 10, 12 years old. Right. Whereas at Jordan, you'll never see, well, not never, but it's a pretty rare moment to see a 10 or 12-year-old fish, and those fish are like at age three or like 10, 11, 12 inches long. You have to manage each fishery different. It's not one-size-fits-all. And the limitations of rule changes and those kinds of things is not one size fits all. You just really can't like cover it as a blanket. It's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of work with folks on their ponds and things like that. And a couple of times a year, I'll get people ask me questions about, can I put crappy in my pond? And really, most of the time, it's not a good idea because of that prolific spawning behavior. That I'm going to go a different way. Well, I'm going to say all of the time. It's a bad idea. There's one exception to that. Please tell me. And it is these old mill ponds that have kind of found their own way in the world. And they have everything from chain pickerels and suckers. And they have all the stuff. It's like, you know, a creek just poured into their pond. Yeah. And those instances, there's a few of them that have crappy that kind of have maintained their own kind of magic balance. But if you're trying... To make that happen, it's almost impossible. And what you'll wind up with is a bunch of crappy the size of a business card in your pond. That's exactly right. And even if you like potato chips, those are hard to clean. They are. Well, you just have to fry them whole scales and all and just eat the whole thing. That can be a fish cracker at that point. 
Right. So also, there's certain systems that seem to produce larger fish than others. And some of our coastal systems can produce 10 inch plus fish, and other of our coastal creeks and systems, if you wanted a 10 inch length limit, like sometimes people say, well, it worked there. Why can't we have it here? Well, when we model the populations and we look at it, 10 inches is maybe about as big as those fish get. So it would be impractical in those instances to have a length limit that would be that large. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, and I tell the folks that work for us, is that not everybody, and you're going to hear this on this podcast over and over again if you keep listening, not everybody of water is meant to be everything to every species. And certain situations are going to grow crappy really well. Certain situations are not. And you kind of have to know that going into it. And the body of water will show out what it's going to do. So, you know, we have bodies of water in the Piedmont and really across the state that will never be great crappy fisheries. They're just not. And then we have some like Jordan Lake, Harris Lake, Falls Lake, High Rock Lake that really are. In our coastal rivers, there's a lot of really quality crappy in our coastal rivers. You got to know where they are and how to find them. And it's different than being in a reservoir. It's totally different fishing for them than fishing for them in a reservoir. It's a different technique, but they are there. Some of the river crappy fisheries are some of the best kept secrets in the state. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, my dad loved to catch a crappy. He thought it was like, it was like the golden goose because they were so hard to find on the Noose River when I was a kid. And during the times of the year that we could go do it, he loved doing that because it was one of those things that was more difficult. It was not easy to come by and you had to really work for it. And I think he had a greater appreciation for it when we did find them. Yeah. And that's one of the things I learned out on Jordan is that it's not as simple as you think it is. It's not the spider rigging that you see, or at least that's not what we did. Using live bait and all that's fine and great. And that happens practically year round at Jordan. If you go out there, you're going to see these guys spider rigging and around the bridges and other places. But this gave me a better appreciation for the fishery because it was more active. You were trying to figure out what exactly they wanted and how they wanted it and you could be a foot away from where you needed to be and you were not the game. You were out of the game. But if you were a foot closer, it's like, oh, now I'm in the game. We fished from about 8.30 and I thought, what did we pull lines in? About 11, 11.30, something yeah, like that. Yeah. It was probably 100 degrees by then. Yeah, it was yeah, pretty hot. Water temperature had gotten up to around 85. And the fishing was pretty good, but I think we had our best luck on the deeper water as the water temperature warmed up that day. But Getting in the size of fish that we were experiencing that day, we were catching fish that, except the one, of course, that Corey never got in that we weren't able to, yeah, to measure. That was, that was probably fish. Yeah, maybe was, 15 or 16 inches. But we were catching most of our fish that day. It seemed like they were all right around the 10-inch limit, you know, 9 to 10 to 11 inches, somewhere in there, consistently all day. And we had a good day. You know, it was some places were better than others, and that's fishing. But, you know, again, the folks that are running spider lines and a bunch of rigs out, their style of fishing is a little different than what we were doing that day. And what they catch is possibly different depending on the day, too. But but we had a pretty good day that day. So I have a question because obviously Ben and I haven't done this a lot. But down east where I'm from, when I'm trout fishing, speckled trout fishing in salt water, trout can be there on structure or on a point or whatever. And you'll be catching them and all of a sudden it's just like they hit a brick wall and they're just off. And then three hours later, you can be in that same spot and they're back on again. Do crappy do that? 
I experienced the same things, Corey, with crappy fishing. It, you can catch fish on every cast, and it's like somebody turned the light switch off, and it could be wind directions changed. It could be, you know, currents in the water, anything, you know, bait. But yeah, it can change. And then you can leave the place and go somewhere else and come right back to it an hour or two later, and they're right back there again. So that's one thing about crappy fishing and fishing spots numerous times in the same day. I never hesitate to drop my trolling motor and try it again in the same spot. They turn the light switch off on. And that's been my experience, you know, in all work. You know that light switch that is somewhere in somebody's house and nobody knows what it goes to? Yeah, it's yeah. fish bite. It's the fish bite switch. It's in a warehouse or something. People keep flipping it, not knowing what it does, or back up into <laughs> it and it switches. If we ever figure out where that switch is, we're going to straight wire that switch. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I tell folks that all the time. I said, there's a switch somewhere. We just it's, can't find it. It's amazing. It's I don't know that it's true of every fish, but it's true of a lot of fish. You just be all of a sudden. Some stripers are like that. Yeah, too. you just be catching them hand over fist, and then all of a sudden it's just like, where'd they go? And they're still there. <laughs> they haven't left the building. They just decided, eh, we don't like what you're doing anymore. Yeah, that crappy fishing is, you know, it's about adapting to, you know, what may work. If you're not in that same spot or that perfect spot, like you said, Corey, earlier, you know, you may be a foot from them. You know, so reposition true. the boat, and I have my favorite colors, but changing colors up, it may or may not work, but that's fishing. You know? you know, it just dawned on me why I got banished to the back of the boat. It was right after that fish dropped off my line that <laughs> he kicked me to the back of the boat. He didn't say, Corey, take yourself to the back of the boat. You're a failure. He just said, Ben, come up to the front of the boat and catch a fish. That's what good leadership does. He yeah. didn't. He just promoted me. He didn't necessarily demote you. <laughs> but somehow I found my way to the back of the boat. <laughs> so Cam just said it, and it was something I wanted to bring up, is with most fishing, but especially this type of fishing in particular, boat position is very important. Oh, yeah. And I, there was on a couple occasions... We would set up one way and, and Cam wasn't happy with it. And we would switch the boat almost 180 degrees to, just so we could be at a little bit different angle. So if you won't mind, just talk a little bit about boat control or boat positioning. Yeah. You know, like I said earlier, I like to start at a distance if I can, because I do believe that the movement of water that's created by a boat and a trolling motor does make a difference on structure when fish are holding the structure and in my experience, is that if I can start at a distance and come in downwind to where my boat's not blowing over top of that structure, and I'm much better off. And so, yeah, I, I like to work the structure, and you know, it may be on the shallow side or or the deep side of the structure, and it may just be a pocket in the structure that works better. But yeah, that boat is critical where you put it and where you cast it, and I'll work all sides and all angles of it until I figure out what's working the best. And luckily today, with a new technology, with spot lock, you know, and being able to anchor lock your trolling motor, if you've got that available to you, it's a great asset, you know, to keep that boat in the same spot. But I do move around a little bit until I figure out what's working. And the thing about, you know, fishing structure like I fish, and and we've already said it, but it, you can fish at a distance and then tighten up on it, if you will, and get that boat a little bit closer to it and a little bit closer to it. And as that water, you know, the day goes on and the water temperature rises, those fish seem to pull into that structure a little tighter. And I can and have caught fish just by fishing vertically, you know, and using that 30-second ounce jig that slows it down, that fall a little bit slower and in the presentation form to where it's right in front of them, if you will, and twitch it and look for that bump. But I start at a distance and then draw it in a little bit closer. I've definitely, in my fishing, I definitely am more and more aware of 
the impact that a boat has in an area. And anymore, I'm setting the boat down way far away from an area I'm wanting to fish, and I'm creeping in because if you show up, if you barrel into a place and you're like, oh, man, there's fish everywhere, and you see them, yeah. it's because you scared them. So I think as I've developed as an angler, I've learned that that boat control, especially boat control, but even more so the boat wake and how you approach an area is really important. And it's best if you can, whether it's the shadow of the boat, the noise of the boat, whatever, but all the things that you can do to minimize the fish and letting you know that you're there, the better off you're going to be in many instances. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, like the last structure that we fished on the the last one of the day, if you hadn't had your boat in right control, we'd have been all over that structure and it was shallow enough that we wouldn't have caught a thing if you'd have accidentally blown over top of that structure. At least in my mind, I think they would have dispersed or just shut up and said, no, nah, I'm not interested in whatever you're doing right now. Yeah, that was the structure that you could actually see yeah. Yeah, right under the water surface there. And we were fishing the deep side of that structure and man, they were holding in there really good. But oh, yeah, yeah if, if we'd have blown over that on top of the boat, we'd have been in it. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't agree more about boats and boat traffic and that kind of thing. I mean, I was fishing Lake Norman with a buddy of mine, and we were catching hybrid striped bass, and we probably were catching them about every cast or every other cast. And another boat rolled in. He was crappy fishing, and he rolled into a dock, and he rolled about 25 yards from us pretty hard, like came barreling in and stopped right at the dock, and the dock was 25 yards from us, and it shut those hybrids off. They said... We're gone. Thanks. Appreciate it. And they were out. I mean, you couldn't find them. It was over. Yeah, you have to so, be careful. I mean, yeah, as a matter of etiquette, maybe just be aware when you see somebody else fishing. Yeah. Just be aware of your boat wake, especially. And, yep. you know, always err on the side of less influence is better. Some species are spookier than others. It doesn't really affect them a whole lot. And some, it affects a lot. Right. Yeah. Right. So I've asked this of everybody. I'm going to ask this of Cam. You know, if you had to have, you don't have to give away, but so much of your secrets. But if you had to have one bait, you dropped on a desert island, and this is your one bait that's going to keep you alive, what would you like to have? Well, I'll give you two. And it's changed over the years because you can only give us one. It'll be one per time period in my fishing career. But yeah, for so many years, I was a what I thought was a bass fisherman, largemouth bass fisherman. And my go-to, I could buy a hundred plugs, but the one that I would always go to at the end of the day was a purple culprit. That was my go-to rubber worm that I could catch bass on in just about any place I ever went. But as I transitioned over to giving that up and crappy fishing was so much funner for me and the amount of fish that I was catching and taking home to eat, I started fishing with Bobby Garland's they make one Bobby Garland. That's probably my go-to is the monkey milk color. And that's what we were using that day. I think, Ben, you were using a pearl white, I, I believe. pearl white. Yep. It looked like a miniature white fluke. Big yeah, shock. Was, Big yeah. shock. Old, ben old was using for me. the pearl white. Yep. I was just floored that you would pick that bait up. But anyway, <laughs> like I've never seen you use that one before. Yep. That would be my number one today in 2022 would be a 16th ounce jig head with a monkey milk Bobby Garland. Would it give me a bag of those and then let me go at it. That's my favorite. I will say that it worked it because worked. I watched it work. 
In fact, I went home and I looked online at the places that I order tackle from and I hadn't ordered them yet, but I got me a shopping cart. And I also looked at the rods that I <laughs> yeah, used. Exactly. And uh, unfortunately, the manufacturer that I do business with didn't have them in stock, but I'm going to be ordering me some in case Cam ever yeah. invites me let, back out. Let me know when they get in stock because I need to order me some because <laughs> right. I realized real quick I didn't have what I needed. Right. So I was close, but I was just one weight off of where I needed to be. So I'm definitely going to be be loading up so that the next time I get the invite, I'll be ready to go. So, yeah. Cam, just talking about the director's office, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners about things you think are going good, things you think we'd like to do more of, you know, anything along those lines? Yeah, I'd like to talk briefly and let the listeners know about this important project that we've got going on with fisheries in the state. It's at our Setzer facility in Western North Carolina, and it's where we produce most of our trout that we release in the state for our anglers to enjoy. And we're getting ready to start a process of rebuilding that hatchery. It's been approved by the Wildlife Commission and being used by our Wildlife Endowment Fund, which is, generates revenues from the sale of hunting and fishing lifetime license. And it's a huge project. It's one of our biggest projects we've ever done. It's a $20 million project. And we're so excited to get that thing. We're in, progressing through the stages of it now. And we haven't started construction yet. We hope to start construction in about eight months, eight to 10 months on that project. We've had a few challenges with the rise of product costs. So we're addressing some of that. Our estimate cost of the project is now up to about $30 million, so we're going to be seeking some assistance with some funding there. But it is an extremely important project for the state of North Carolina. The revenue in the economy building that it does across the state is estimated about $250 million annually, and we generate about 80% of our trout in North Carolina right there at that facility. And so we're really, really excited. That facility has been in existence since the 50s, and so it's time to get it rebuilt and get those fish back out there in the waters of Western North Carolina and also in the Piedmont. We're doing some stocking of trout now in, in the Piedmont, and so our anglers being able to enjoy our resource in the state that we've not been stocking before. So any of our overstock that we have, we're, we're putting it in some of our Piedmont locations, and, and it's been you know really sought out by different fishermen all over the state. So, yeah, our Setzer Fish Hatchery is an exciting, exciting project that we're in process of now. Yeah, I, I talked to some of the hatchery guys earlier this year, and they told me, those of you who don't know, there was a terrible flood, and it did a lot of damage on that Setzer hatchery. And so it's great news that we're going to have that back as a resource for our anglers. And, and, and the mountain trout guys are going to benefit, but they grow some other stuff there as well, too. So it'll definitely be a huge benefit and a huge asset for the Wildlife Commission and the state of North Carolina. Yeah. Is it question time, Corey? I guess so. Yeah. So once again, we've been pretty excited about all the questions that you guys have been sending in to us. And we're going to try to answer a few of the questions each time on the podcast, kind of towards the end of the podcast. Today, I got a couple. The first one is from Jim Lipkamen. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Probably not. But he asked, is North Carolina a state that bans felt-sold waders for trout fishing? So we had a trout fishing podcast earlier and we talked about gear and all that kind of stuff. And some states have banned felt soles because it can transfer organisms that we don't like to go from one water body to the other. And the answer to that is, is that North Carolina is not a state currently that bans that activity. But what we would encourage you to do 
is to, every time you use felt-soled waders or waders of any kind or any gear, is when you take it home, dry it out, clean it, clean it properly, let it air dry, and make sure that there's no organisms still attached to those waders so that you don't transfer organisms from one body of water to the other. From a guy who's worn waders for like a week straight, a little bit of Clorox can go a long way for a, a variety bit. of reasons yes. when you're talking yes. about maintaining your gear. Yeah, if you wear waders of any type from basically mid-May to mid-October, you might want to get some kind of aerosol can because you're going <laughs> to you're gonna leak some water and it's not going to be out of the river. It's going to be out of your body. So the next question, and Ben, this one might be for you because this is all about ponds. Let's do it. This comes from Boone Meal. My question is around what to stock in a pond. Currently, it has a very healthy population of four to six pound largemouth. Don't do anything. A variety of big brim really don't do anything. And lots of crappie. Okay, maybe you'll have to do something. We like eating the crappie, so I feel like I can keep culling them out to reduce the population. I have not caught or seen a single catfish, and we don't catch very many smaller bass in the one to two pound range. My fear is that the crappie and big bass don't leave room for smaller bass. What would you guys suggest as a stocking strategy? Do you introduce channel cats or stock Florida stream bass? Thanks for your help. Wow, there's a lot going on in this question. But this is great. This is what we have. And I believe I messaged Mr. Mill and I said, please call me. Because this is one of those questions that just like one answer gives you four other questions. So yeah, please give me a shout. But really, if you have four to six pound bass and big brim, probably ride that train just a little bit longer. The crappie, if they're not a problem, and they could be, and I'll talk a little bit about it, but the crappie you catch in your pond, especially a two and a half acre pond, everyone you catch needs to come out. That could be why you're not seeing smaller bass, because the crappie are probably predating on the bass fry. And so they're probably keeping things a little bit out of whack. I get this question about catfish all the time. There is no biological need for catfish in a pond. What that really means is that the importance of catfish is how important it is for you to catch catfish. And if you want to catch catfish, you should put them in your pond at about, let's just say, 50 per acre. No more than that. Because catfish can waller into your dam and cause some issues there. It's always easier to buy more catfish and put more catfish in than it is to catch catfish out when you've put too many in. Let's see, there was other questions in there too, right? At least one more. No, as far as Florida bass goes, you know, we talked about this in our last podcast with Matt Airy, is there's some benefits to Florida and F1 hybrids, but if you have a good, healthy bass population, there's really no need to stock a different bass in there Because in all honesty, especially in a pond, natural reproduction is going to overwhelm anything you stock. And if you have four to six pound bass and you stock little bass, little bass, (laughs) they're going to get munched on. Yeah, bass aren't that expensive, relatively speaking, until you're using them as forage base for your fish. (laughs) And then, you know literally about like throwing snicker bars in a pond. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning. If you got four to six pound bass and big bluegill, ride that train. Right. I mean, without having smaller bass, it may be a worry, but the future you can worry about that. Ride that four or six pound bass train for now. If they start to go away, feel free to give us a call. 
I'll help you or I'll send you to your nearest biologist and they can help you. But it sounds like you've got a pretty decent pond, especially for the size of it. And he said in his comments, he's got a two and a half acre pond. And in parenthesis, dreams really do come true. And I definitely understand how that's an awesome thing, an awesome resource for you to have. Because I have a pond. A big reason why I became a fish biologist is because I grew up fishing my granddaddy's ponds. So we got one more question. One more question. It's a two-part question. So this comes from Blake Green. The first is in reference to bass fishing. And he goes, where is the best fishery to catch both trophy size, catch a lot, and learning their behavior? Is it talking about bass? So that's a lot. That's all in one. Is that Jordan Falls, Carr, John Carr, or wherever? Right. I personally think that there's a lot of really good bass fisheries, particularly in the Piedmont and on the coast. And to be honest, in the mountains, too, depending on what species of bass you want to fish for. But let's just talk about largemouth. There are just a lot of really good bass fisheries if you get out. I would tell him if you are looking for a trophy fish, yeah, Jordan's producing pretty nice fish right now. There's a lot of 9, 10-pound fish being caught at Jordan in the spring of the year. So those fish are definitely there at Jordan. But Falls and Harris are very good fisheries, too. But you get outside of the triangle, a lot of these municipal lakes that are dotted all along the Piedmont have excellent largemouth fisheries. I mean, there are places in Greensboro, like Lake Branton Greensboro is a really good place, or it used to be a really good place to catch bass. Lake Higgins in Greensboro is a good place to catch bass. You go down in Ashburg, the city lakes in Ashburg are great places to catch bass. So there are some really high-quality bass fisheries. Now, that's us seeing them electrofishing. They do get a lot of fishing pressure. And so that tends to lower the rates that anglers see them. I think it's very tempting, especially for a new angler to like, you know, right now Jordan's talked a lot about cars always been a popular place to go. And so you go online and you're like, I want to bass fishing in North Carolina. And those are two likely places to come up. But really, if you're just getting into bass fishing, you don't have to go to the noteworthy. There's bass fishing Go to the closest place. Yeah, go really spend some time and pick one spot, spend some time there, tease it apart, and start to learn that system. Because bass are bass are bass. And if you learn how to catch bass in one place, you'll be able to catch them somewhere else using some of the same techniques. A buddy of mine called me not too long ago, and he was like, I've been fishing gas, I've been fishing car, I've been fishing show on, I've been fishing the lower Roanoke. I'm having very mixed results. And I was like, well, you're not spending enough time in any one place. Try to say this is going to be my core area and really learn that. And I think you'll have a lot more success over time. Now, doesn't mean that you can't, if you feel like you're beating your head against the wall, you want some diversity, have at it. But again, 70% of the time, I'm going to fish this system and I'm going to learn this system and then branch out from there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing about that too is, People were often asking us in the field about where the best spot to go to, and the best spot is wherever you can get to. With bass fishing, like Corey, you just said, I mean, we fish from the mountains to the coast for largemouth, and they all bring something different, but they're all similar, and it's being able to get out there and enjoy fishing and enjoy the outdoors and and the experience itself, and North Carolina is a great place to do that. Oh, yes, absolutely. So the last question, which we've answered a lot of this in the podcast today on crappy, he asked, Blake Green asked again, what would you say is the best fishery to catch both trophy size and a lot of them in order to learn their behavior when it comes to crappy? I know Cam's going to say Jordan Lake because that's where Cam fishes. 
Ben, you got any place that you would suggest? I'm going to default to what I said before is the best place to crappy fish is the closest place yeah. that crappy are. We've got some great ones. You know, Tar River Reservoir is kind of a sleeper. Yeah. It's got some really good crappy in it. Really, all of the Albemarle system, the lower Roanoke has got some great crappy in it. All of those little feeder rivers up there. One of our biologists up there has a lot of success on crappy fishing those lakes. And the noose, the tar, not much pressure. Right, many crappy if you know what you're doing and you can find them. It's a very seasonal thing, but it can be really good. So I wouldn't be as keen on where to go as much as I would say, this is my lake and I'm going to learn this lake and figure out where to go. So if you fish somewhere close, you're more likely to fish it more often, Mm -hmm. which will also make you a better angler because it's a numbers game. The only difference between the fishing I do and the fishing that somebody else does is the number of days that I do it. I'm not special. It's not me. Well, you're special in a different way. Can't argue that. (laughs) So, once again, we really appreciate the questions you guys are sending in to us. You can always reach us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org. People are sending in pictures. We really like getting your pictures. In fact, we're going to try to use our pictures in the podcast. At some point, we're going to do a little bit of video of the podcast. So please send in your pictures of you catching fish. And if you'll let us use them, we'll post them as well. So we really enjoyed it. Cam, we can't thank you enough for being here, man. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. Yeah, well, thanks for both of y'all for having me and what you're doing here in connection with our constituents and the constituent support that we have across the state. We appreciate that. And yeah, I just really enjoyed our time on the water and would encourage everybody to get out there and share some of the same experiences with somebody yourselves. And yeah, go enjoy fishing. That's right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. For questions and topic suggestions, please email us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org.